I have very much enjoyed seeing our neighbors right across the street from us develop and use that land. Uh, when I first started coming to Redeemer, right across the street was just a lot of dirt. And slowly it has become a small little ranch. And among the livestock present out there, you know, they have cattle, but primarily they seem to be raising a good number of sheep. And it was not long ago that Jesse actually pointed out to me how fitting of an imagery that is to have right in front of the church. And it's so true. It's so fitting for us as a church to walk in and out and see sheep grazing almost every day, or at least for me every day. And we say that because the Bible loves to use sheep and shepherds metaphorically. All right, so one of my favorite things, for example, that my wife does is every single night when she puts Matthew to bed, she recites Psalm 23 to him. It's very, very precious to me. Psalm 23 is a famous psalm. It's beautiful. It's re relatively short. It's poetic. And it's often known because the vast majority of the psalm is praying to God and referring to him as a shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. Right? And he leads us beside still waters into green pastures. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Psalm 23 addresses God as shepherd and we his sheep. We see another example in the Old Testament where Moses, before leading the people into the promised land, although he wouldn't go in there, he prayed to God that God would give them another leader after he died because he was afraid that Israel would be like sheep without a shepherd. And we just read publicly today Ezekiel 34, where that entire chapter is God addressing the people of Israel as sheep. And he addressed then their religious leaders as shepherds, but failed ones failed shepherds who have destroyed the sheep and have not fed the sheep. And he promised to give them, David, he promised to give them a better shepherd for their protection and their glory. But it's not just an Old Testament theme. It's prevalent in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's Jesus himself who loves the sheep and shepherd metaphors. He has the famous parable of why he desires so much to save every last sinner. And remember, he describes it as a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one gets lost. And does not the shepherd leave the 99 to go save the one? So Jesus used this metaphor as well. But perhaps Jesus' most popular and prolific sheep-shepherd metaphor, and potentially the most popular one in the entire Bible, is the one we get to look at today. And it's found in John chapter 10. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 10 so we can talk about sheep's Sheep and shepherds. John chapter 10. We are just starting this chapter, so we'll start right at the beginning in verse 1. When you're there, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, where we'll read verses 1 through 21. Thus saith the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. John chapter 10 begins in the same context where we left off in John chapter 9. There's a chapter break, but there's no indication of there being a chronological break. So this, is, this sermon that Jesus preaches is fresh off of the heels of the former blind man who was falsely and wrongly excommunicated, and then Jesus interacting with the Pharisees on their behalf. And so what Jesus is now turning and preaching to the people is that this, this, the Pharisaical mistreatment of this formerly blind man, this is not a one-off event. Right? This was not just a, a rare circumstance. Jesus recognizes that these religious leaders have failed their people and mistreated their people for a long time. This is a pattern for them. As a matter of fact, it's a pattern that goes long before even the Pharisees. As Jesus says, all who have come before me are thieves and liars. Now, obviously, there's general exceptions to that. There have been godly leaders of Israel. But for the most part, ever since Israel's inception, her shepherds have been failures. Her shepherds have been evil people who abuse the sheep. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pouncing on this opportunity. It has been made manifest how cruel and selfish and unjust they are. And so Jesus is now preaching this sermon in an attempt to take the affections that they had for their religious leaders and turn them to himself. He wants to show them that their leaders have failed, but that God has sent him to be the leader that will never fail. And so to do this, he chooses to speak in a figure of speech. Or you could call it a metaphor or a parable. That word figure of speech is a very all-encompassing word. He speaks in non-literal language. And because the first century Israel was largely an agricultural community, most of them were farmers, it would make sense that Jesus would appeal to something that was familiar to them, like sheep and shepherds. So Jesus then metaphorically describes himself as a shepherd of the people of Israel. He identifies himself as the good shepherd, which is in contrast to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who are then what? Bad shepherds. Evil shepherds. And that's why in his analogy he actually 
switches from referring to them as shepherds at all and chooses to instead refer to them as thieves and robbers. Right? They're, they are much less like a shepherd and more like the robbers who try to steal sheep from the shepherd. That's how they behave. They're no longer even thought of as shepherds in Jesus' mind. They're thieves and liars and robbers. So Jesus comes in to identify himself as the only shepherd where the sheep of Israel can find leadership that will save them and never fail them. So let's examine this parable and see just more specifically how Jesus is the good shepherd. And I, I would argue to you that the text really presents five things that Jesus does to make him the shepherd we ought to follow. In other words, how is Jesus a good shepherd? What makes him so much better than the Pharisees? I think the text gives us five reasons for that. That's what we're going to look at. Reason number one, why is Jesus such a good, how is Jesus such a good shepherd? Because Jesus knows his sheep. Point number one, Jesus knows his sheep. Let's read verses one through four again together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In order to understand this part of the metaphor, um, it might help to make some preliminary remarks about what I learned in my studies this week, specifically about how the Eastern practice of shepherding sheep is very different than what we're accustomed to in the West. One of those differences, it was very common in first century Israel for there to be a large community pen, a large gated area where multiple shepherds, multiple families who owned sheep could all store their sheep together. So if you saw a pen and all these sheep in it, there wasn't just one shepherd who shepherded all those sheep. There would be multiple shepherds and multiple sheep within this pen. And then what these families would do is they would pool their money together so that they could hire someone to sleep overnight at the gate and guard the sheep from robbers and thieves and things of that nature. So there was a benefit, shared land, and then they got to afford a security guard as well. And so the job of the security guard was obviously to defend the sheep at night. And then it was also his job to be the gatekeeper. And he was instructed, you open the gate to no one but the shepherds. No one comes through these doors but the shepherds. They were the gatekeepers. And what was amazing, so once the shepherds would come in and the gatekeeper opens up the door to them, how do the shepherds know which sheep are theirs? How do they gather the right ones? And what we know about Eastern practices, and this is still largely true today, is that they have mastered the sheep-shepherd relationship. They've just mastered it in the East. They domesticate their sheep so well that their sheep actually hear and respond to just their voice. They don't need brands. They don't need whips. The sheep know the voice of their shepherds. That's the kind of intimate relationship these shepherds have with their sheep. As a matter of fact, some of them, I don't think very many sheep farmers today do this, though I might be wrong about that. Most of these shepherds really saw their sheep more as pets and would even name them. And they could actually call them by name and the sheep would respond. They had a relationship with their sheep in the east very similar to the kinds that we have with dogs in the west. These sheep hear their voice. They, know, they don't respond to the voice of the other shepherds who come in. They only respond to the voice of their shepherd. And some of them will even respond to their name. 
So that's actually the, that's the agricultural context that Jesus enters into. And he uses that to this background, background to his metaphor. And so he, he tells the people that the leaders of Israel are no longer to be thought of as shepherds, but as vandals. They are the thieves who don't go through the gate, but they jump over the fence in the middle of the night to steal and harm the sheep. They care nothing for the sheep. The sheep are just there for their personal gain. They fleece the sheep for their self-interest. That's who the leaders of, of Israel are. Jesus says, I'm not like them. I'm the one that the gatekeeper lets in. I'm the one who comes through the gate. So obviously the father then is represented as this gatekeeper. The father has rejected the leaders of Israel. They're thieves and they're robbers. But there is one shepherd that the father says, yes, go to the sheep. I will open the door for you. There is one shepherd in all of Israel that the father has his stamp of approval on. And it's Jesus. And the father opens the door and he sends his son in to go and get his sheep. And Jesus comes in and he tells us he calls them by name. Jesus, unlike the thieves and the robbers who care nothing for the sheep, Jesus has a special, personal, intimate relationship with these sheep. He knows them. He knows who are his. And that's why they're able to recognize his voice. That's how they're able to follow him because Jesus knows them. He has this amazing, deep relationship with his sheep. As a matter of fact, he, he, he elaborates on this special relationship he has with his sheep later on. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason that this is so beautiful that Jesus knows his sheep is because the word know, it doesn't just mean intellectual knowledge. Like when, when I say I know someone, we're not saying I know about someone or I know of someone. Jesus isn't saying I know of the sheep. He's saying I know them. This, this implies intimacy, delight. It's not just intellectual information. It's relationship. And, and more than that, our intimate relationship that the sheep have with the shepherd, Jesus in these verses says, is grounded in, his, in the intimacy he has with the Father. Just as I know the Father, so they now know me. Really, the way of thinking about this is that Jesus loves us and knows us because of the Father's love and knowledge of us. It was the father, after all, who actually gave the sheep to Jesus. And so this point, this is why we believe in our church, at least, that this parable supports a doctrine known as particular redemption. Uh, the more popular term for this is called limited atonement, though I don't prefer that term. I prefer the term particular redemption, which is the doctrine that teaches that Christ came to redeem a particular people. He came only for the elect, and he saves only the elect. In other words, we don't believe that it was necessarily Christ's intention to come and try and save every last person and then fail with most of them. That's not how we see the gospel. And I would argue that our doctrine, though it sounds harsh to evangelical ears, I really think it fits the parable in a way like the alternatives don't, right? Because when Jesus comes to the fold, notice what he's not doing. He's not just making an impersonal call. 
He's not just throwing out the call, just whoever wants to come can come, and then he just crosses his fingers and hopes, I hope a lot of them follow me. That's not the analogy. The analogy is that Jesus goes to the pen already knowing who, who is going to come. He goes to the pen with a particular sheep in mind. I'm not going to get the sheep of the other shepherds. I'm going to get my sheep. And I already know them by name. Before I've called them, before I've entered into relationship with them, I already know them by name and it's those ones and those ones exclusively that I am going to call. Right? And so here's the key. This implies that believers in Christ, in some sense, and that I, I get this needs to be qualified, but in some sense, you belong to Christ before you even believed. Christ calls his own sheep, and he calls them sheep. And he says, I knew them and I loved them before he calls them. But they were already his sheep. He doesn't call goats and then transform them into sheep. He calls sheep that already belong to them. And as a matter of fact, this is the very, this in the text is presented as the reason we respond. We res the reason we respond to the shepherd's voice and no one else is because we already belonged to him before he ever called us. And that's how we know him. So that's why we need to join with Augustine in not interpreting sheep as believers specifically, but more broadly, the elect. Uh, for Augustine says, Therefore the, lo the Lord knows them that are his. They are his sheep. Such sometimes do not know themselves. But the shepherd knows them according to this predestination, this foreknowledge of God, according to the election of the sheep before the foundation of the world. You were a sheep before you even knew you were a sheep. Because God gave you to the Son. You belonged to Christ before you even knew you belonged to Christ because you were elected. The sheep that Christ calls are the elect. We belong to Christ even prior to our faith by way of election. And the elect are always his sheep and that's the group that he knows. That's the group that he loves. That's the group that he enters into the world and calls to himself. Jesus knows his sheep. But, but that leads us to the next point. What else does Jesus do that makes him a good shepherd? It doesn't stop there. He's not just a good shepherd because he knows us and loves us. But he also, as we just said, calls us. He calls the sheep. Read verses 3 through 5 with me. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Like a good shepherd, Jesus calls us out of the world and he gathers us under his headship, under his leadership. This is a doctrine that we refer to as the effectual call. Though, again, it's more popularly known as irresistible grace, but I like the term effectual call better. When Jesus calls the elect to himself, that grace can't be resisted or overcome. The text doesn't say he calls his sheep and they might come. He calls his sheep and he hopes that they will respond to that call. No, the call inevitably brings them. They will come. There is a relationship in the power of that call. In other words, Jesus' voice is a very powerful voice. 
It's a very powerful call. It's a call that actually accomplishes what it's trying to accomplish. He brings his sheep to him. He calls us. He draws us to him. This is why we like to speak in our church of faith as a gift. Faith is not something you created in yourself. It was wrought in you by the Spirit of Christ through this effectual call. And it fits the metaphor well. Because remember, as we talked about, Middle Eastern shepherds, both then and today, primarily used their voice to gather the sheep. So this is why we think that this attests to the effectual call. But, but, but a larger point is that this gathering also attests just simply to what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, which is the glory of the church. In other words, what do we learn? What's so good about the effectual call of the shepherd? What it means is that Jesus does not leave us as isolated sheep to wander in the wilderness by ourselves. He gathers us together in a new flock under his leadership, under his protection. He brings us to himself and into then community with one another. And, and by the way, you want to know what's even more beautiful about this effectual call? is Jesus makes sure to remind us about its absolute diversity. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. This here is a truth bomb that Jesus just nuked the people of Israel with. And had they understood it, they would have lost their minds. Here Jesus is prophesying that his church, his new flock, his new fold, his new people will be men and women from the entire world, not just Israel. According to this metaphor, the, the fold that Jesus is entering into is the nation of Israel. And within this fold, there's a mixed group. There are some elect sheep and some non-elect. And Jesus comes into Israel and he draws out the elect Israelites to bring them into a new flock. He is literally drawing them out of old Israel and into new Israel. But then Jesus goes to remind us, by the way, this isn't the only fold that I have sheep in. I have sheep in a different fold and I'm going to go get those ones and I'm going to unite them with these ones creating one new flock. So the first fold is Israel. The second fold then is the world. The Gentile nations. Jesus says, yes, I'm calling my elect Jews out of Israel but I'm calling my elect Gentiles out together and they will come together under me and there will be one new flock under their new head. In other words, Jesus is no respecter of persons. His effectual call is not based on skin color. The beauty of the effectual call, the beauty and the glory of the Christian church is that it teaches us that Christ is not just the shepherd of Israel. He's the shepherd of the world. He's everybody's shepherd. What a glorious picture of Christ gathering sheep from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and leading them to green pastures and sitting them beside still waters. But here's the problem. Any trip from any fold is typically arduous, which means it's difficult and dangerous. Sometimes shepherds have to cross long distances and rough terrain, and sometimes they're even threatened by predators as they make the trip from the fold to their pastures. And on top of that, like real sheep, we tend to be difficult people to lead. We sin. We wander off, we make mistakes, 
And so this leads us to the next very, very important thing that our good shepherd does. He doesn't just know, know us and call us. He protects us. He protects us. Look at verses 4 through 5. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know not for, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus must lead us to wherever we are going. And this means that he is promising to protect us to that promised land. He's promising to get us there. Like a good shepherd, he protects us. This is another part of the parable that's enhanced when we remember Middle Eastern shepherding practices. In the West, you've maybe seen videos or maybe you've seen it in real life. Shepherds don't lead sheep, they drive sheep. Meaning, shepherds are behind the sheep, pushing them forward. And this is often accomplished with sheepdogs. They have dogs that will push the sheep, and when, then when sheep start to wander, the dog will run off and scare it back in. So the shepherds corral and they drive, they push the sheep from behind. And they use dogs or horses or ATVs or whatever else they have. But in the east, they don't use dogs, they don't use horses, they don't use... They don't even stand behind them. They don't drive the sheep, they lead them. They go out in front and the sheep follow them from behind. And when a sheep wanders off, all the shepherd has to do is call it and it brings it back in. That's the picture for us. Jesus does not whip us from behind and drive us like a slave master. He leads us. He goes out in front of us and we follow him and we listen to his voice. And his voice is so powerful that it protects us from falling prey. We won't listen to strangers. We won't wander off because our shepherd is leading us and calling us from the front. Jesus is promising to get you to where he wants you to go. He's going to protect you. It's a dangerous road from here to heaven. Your shepherd will guide you. His voice will keep you from wandering into dangerous places where you will be destroyed. I'm going to keep my comments on this point brief because this is going to be a major theme next week. But I just want to quick, quickly say that I believe this supports our doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. That true sheep who know Christ and are known by him the true sheep who actually hear his voice will not and cannot be lost. Because the power of Christ is what keeps us from getting lost. It's the power of his voice that protects us from strangers, from death. He's a good shepherd because he protects us. He protects us wherever he's leading us. But that begs the next question. Where is he leading us? Where is our good shepherd trying to take us? And that brings us to our next point. The metaphor, Jesus says he's leading us to green pasture, which he specifically identifies as salvation. Our shepherd is leading us to heaven. He's leading us to salvation. So our fourth point, what makes Jesus a good shepherd? He saves his sheep. He knows them. He calls them. He protects them. He saves them. Let's read verses 7 through 10 together. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here, Jesus' focus is our destination. Our destination is in view in these passages. We are brought out to pasture, which Jesus explicitly calls salvation. 
Where's your destination? Where's your shepherd leading you? To abundant life. That's where he's taking you. And this means that heaven is not just living forever. That's just bare minimum of heaven. That's just heaven 101. He's not just leading you to life. He's leading you, he explicitly says, not just to life, but to abundant life. He doesn't want you just to have life. He wants you to have life abundant. That means that heaven is not just living forever. It's living forever in glorious bliss. In glory, in perfection. What a great promise that our shepherd has made for us. That Jesus is the shepherd who saves us. He leads us to abundant, everlasting life. And here, I believe he is em emphasizing a doctrine which is a major theme, not just in this chapter, not even just in this book, but in the entire New Testament. That which we call the exclusivity of Christ. And this means that Christ is the only way a person can be saved. Salvation is found nowhere else. You cannot be saved outside of Christ. Now, how does the text emphasize this? Well, it does so in a number of ways. All right, first, Jesus got done describing all others as thieves and robbers. So in other words, Jesus is not claiming to be a good shepherd. He's claiming to be the good shepherd. If you follow anyone else to salvation, you followed a thief. You've been stolen. You are not being shepherded. You're being destroyed. There is only one salvation leader who is the shepherd. There's only one. All other religious leaders are liars and thieves. Anyone else who claims to give you eternal life and you don't need Jesus for it is a liar and a thief. To put it more bluntly, all other religions are false. And their leaders are thieves and their gods are idols. There is one flock, there is one true religion, one true faith, one true flock, which implies there is only one shepherd. There's only one way to abundant life. But Jesus also emphasizes this teaching by adjusting his metaphor slightly. You may have picked up on it as we read through this. When Jesus picks up on the metaphor again, it's kind of confusing because he, he starts to get loose with it, flexible with it, right? Because he began by describing himself as the shepherd who enters through the gate, and then he picks back up, and now he's no longer the shepherd, but the gate itself. I am the gate. I am the door to the sheep. So Jesus is both the shepherd and the door. Now keep in mind, there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, Jesus is telling us a metaphor or a parable. It's not an allegory. Right? So in an allegory, you have one coherent story and the same people represent the same things all the way throughout. That's an allegory. This is not an allegory. It's a loose, it's a figure of speech, it's a metaphor, it's a parable. So Jesus has flexibility here. So don't think that it's a big problem that there might be some inconsistencies in the imagery. He's just trying to throw out related images to make these larger points. So yes, Jesus is both the shepherd who comes through the gate and he is the gate himself. And here he's focusing on himself as the door to the sheep. And so what is he trying to say? He's trying to say there's only one access to salvation. There's a gate and there's only one door. And that door's name is Jesus. Anyone who doesn't come through Christ has hopped over the gate and is a thief and a robber. If you go out any other way, you're going out into dangerous territory. There is only one door to salvation. And Jesus says, I'm him. I'm the door. 
there is no other entrance into abundant life. He alone shepherds us. He alone leads us. He alone opens salvation to us. In other words, as we're about to sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. Your hope is not found in Christ. It's found in Christ alone. He is the door. He is the shepherd. However, we have to get to our last problem because as we've already seen, our good shepherd who knows us and calls us and protects us and he's leading us to abundant life, he's leading us to heaven, we have a problem and it's called sin. We have been barred from heaven. Jesus is leading us to a place we're not allowed to go. He's leading us to a garden we got kicked out of. How are we going to get in? How is our shepherd going to actually get us in? And that leads us to the last, the really climactic thing that our good shepherd does. Jesus redeems his sheep. Let's read verses 11 through 15 together. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. If you were one of the few wealthy shepherds living in first century Israel, you might have the means to hire other men to do your shepherding for you. These men are called under-shepherds. Or sometimes they're just called hirelings. They're not, they don't own the sheep, but the shepherd has employed them to sort of do the dirty work. And typically, I'm sure they do a great job. I'm sure they do a fine job. But there's one thing that they won't do. Die. They're just there for the paycheck. They don't actually really care so much for the sheep because the sheep don't actually ultimately belong to them. Again, they're just there for the paycheck. So if mortal danger approaches, of course they're going to flee, right? It's better to be fired than dead. But Jesus is not a hireling. Jesus is not an under-shepherd. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, 1 Peter describes, I'm the under-shepherd. I'm the hireling. And so this means that I don't ultimately own you. And this means that you should never judge Jesus' love for you based on my failings. I have failed you and I will continue to fail you as a pastor of this church. But take heart, I'm a hireling. I'm just an under-shepherd. Your true shepherd will never fail you. And he is the true shepherd because he actually owns the sheep, which leads him to actually care about their well-being. In other words, what am I trying to tell you? It's really simple. Christ loves you. He loves you. And what does his love lead him to do? As he says in the text, he lays down his life. He died to save you. Jesus is using this climax of the metaphor to teach a crucial doctrine that we in this church call substitutionary atonement. That we are redeemed, or another of saying it, our sins were atoned for because a substitute paid their price on our behalf. Jesus died in our place, or as the text says, for the sheep. That's sacrificial language. That's substitutionary language. I did this for them in their place. I died so that they wouldn't have to. 
He died for our sins. And it's unfortunate today because there are many people who deny this basic doctrine. And they blasphemously claim that this turns God into a pagan deity who delights in child sacrifice the way all the pagan deities kill children to appease them. Now, this is a false analogy for many reasons, but the main reason Jesus actually gives us in this text, look at verses 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. In other words, Jesus is not a child, first and foremost, and he's not dragged away to the slaughter against his will, like what happens in pagan child sacrifices. Jesus makes it very clear, I volunteered for this. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down. When his sheep hear him telling this, they just see, they know how he died willingly out of love for his father and for his father's plan and for us. This is not child sacrifice. It's a beautiful doctrine wherein our shepherd, out of care and love, steps in the way of danger for us. He dies so that we don't have to. He willingly lays down his life for us and for the Father's elect. Jesus was commissioned by his Father to lay down his life and to take it up again out of love for his father and for the sheep that his father gave him. Jesus came to earth to die for our sins and raise himself from the dead for our justification. He destroyed our enemies by his death and resurrection. And so in conclusion, all of this is ultimately why we can say that Jesus is alone the good shepherd because he knows his sheep. He calls his sheep. He protects his sheep. He saves his sheep. And he redeems his sheep. 